0: As followers of Jesus in the midst of another polarizing election season, we don't have the choice to walk away from our responsibility to change broken policies that are breaking our neighbors or to end relationships with our family and friends who might think differently than we do.
1: That's why this season of the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast is exploring how we are to engage politics as citizens of the kingdom of God and the United States. It's going to be hard and messy, but it's holy work we're here for it all. Thanks for joining us for Peace and Politics, Becoming Everyday Peacemakers in and outside of the voting booth. So uh, we are really excited for you all to listen into this conversation uh, with Carlos Rodriguez, who uh, brings a big dose of energy and prophetic zeal and hope and uh, and gives us the opportunity to hear from someone who's outside of uh, the, the continental U.S., from Puerto Rico, and the ways that he, in, as part of a territory, doesn't necessarily have all the benefits of those up here in these upper 50, uh, and gives us a perspective of those on the margins in ways that is so important as we go into this election
0: season. Yeah, and I love, too, that his story, you know, he, even if we're like, oh, we don't live in Puerto Rico, or we don't... We, he, like we don't feel like we can connect. Like his story, he talks about living in the South, being yeah. a pastor in the South, benefiting and experiencing privilege from having, like being here. And now he lives where he is. So I just, lo- I love that we can kind of see um, his story progress that way and we can find some connection in his story wherever he is That's right. Um, and wherever we are. So yeah, I think this is going to be a great conversation for all of our listeners. I'm so excited. hello and welcome i am so excited because we have carlos rodriguez here on our podcast today carlos welcome I'm so it's excited
2: so, so to good chat to be with you. here lovely faces lovely people it's always good to <laughs> chat and connect with friends so
0: i'm Yoke. here Love yes. it. yeah i mean we are lovely our audience cannot see that they can just hear our <laughs> lovely voices but yes Carlos, we are, um, we are inviting you to help us unpack some of the ideas around peace and politics. um, And just want to just pick your brain and learn from you. And here on this podcast, we are kind of working with three definitions or assumptions okay. when we talk about peace and politics. So the first is that peace is this holistic repair of relationships. So yeah, like I like to think of a shalom, God's dream for the world as it should be, nothing broken, nothing missing, everything made whole. So we're looking interpersonally, intrapersonally, interpersonally, and systemic. Um, Mm -hmm. We're also talking about peacemaking. So uh, moving towards conflict with like the tools for healing and transformation. That's Mm -hmm. our end goal. When we think of engaging as peacemaking, we want to be agents of shalom. And then last, politics, which I think we're all really comfortable talking about politics, but some of our listeners are not. And we just (laughs) want to kind of take some of the like gas out out of that anxiety and say politics is simply the ordering of our society. Yeah. So with all of that in mind, would you introduce yourself to our audience um, by just sharing, we know that the past few years have been Mm. unique and challenging. How have you showed up in the midst of your work and personal life as a peacemaker in the area of politics?
2: Yeah, that's very great introduction and explanation, actually helping me (laughs) verbalize and give some language. Because I I feel like when you and you guys understand this, the more you actually get involved in the work, the the less important. There's an element of there's the less important of all these definitions that seem to be really important in the public square. And I'm not denying that they are important. But when you're actually getting your hands dirty and having to deal with Doña Maria's sickness, And having to deal with no having no electricity and having to deal with moving politicians to deal with this community that's been forgotten. In a way, all that language that is so important for conversations like this, Mm -hmm. it's also so not important, right? It's like this tension of it's valuable that we define it and that we converse about it. And yet when it's time to just do the work, I really couldn't care less what you call it, how you call it, why you call it. We just need to get on and do the work, right? Exactly. And so... So for me personally, that was basically an extreme. I was a pastor in Raleigh, North Carolina, as the Trump era began, realizing that I I barely believed anything I preached. Um, My marriage was struggling. Um, I was unhappy as a pastor.
0: Hmm.
2: And the Trump era brought all these realities to the surface. And I think in a bizarre way, it was a gift. I call it the gift of clarity. Where he's mm-hmm. like, oh wait, that's what you think about the statement Black Lives Matter? And like, wait, that's really what you think about immigrants and people coming from Central America. And it's like, and all these people that I worked with, that I was on boards with, that I was pastoring or were pasturing mm-hmm. me, we have the rare gift of clarity of like, yeah, no, this is where I stand on this issue. And I'm like, holy moly, I mm-hmm. really stand on the opposite side of that issue. And even though it has been heartbreaking for relationships and communities, churches, big and small, I I, I can take a deep breath and feel like maybe in the future we're going to look back and say in the midst of all that brokenness, that pain and the actual human cost of this season, there was clarity. There was definition. And now I'm saying it's really important to define, right? And so it's like we have all these words that we use that sound important but when you actually get to do the work they're really not important and then you get to the point it's like oh wait it is important to define that this is what we do this is why we do it this is actually why i don't do it with these people anymore Mm -hmm. and it's not a lack of love of willingness to bring peace it's just like the gift of clarity says i'm carlos I'm actually not meant to be a pastor in Raleigh, North Carolina anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm meant to give my life to the people of Puerto Rico, a place I was born and raised, Mm -hmm. um, because of the systemic injustice, the economic inequality, and the actual legitimate real life issues people are struggling with here. Mm -hmm. And I want to be part of giving a voice, of of sounding the alarm, and of actually getting my hands dirty to do the work that matters.
0: Mm. So what I love about what you just said is something that, so for my 40th birthday I had my family and a couple of good friends come over and do yeah. a, um, pal- we did called it a TED Talk night. And they came <laughs> and they just like, whatever they could do a TED Talk on for like seven minutes. That's it'd be so great. Sweet. And um, one of my friends is super into Mr. Rogers. And they gave <laughs> me kind of my mantra of my 40s, which is clarity is kindness. And that mm. that's something that they learned from studying Mr. Rogers work Beautiful. and what I'm hearing you say is that the gift of clarity mm. allows us to be kind to ourselves be kind to those we may disagree with it's, yeah. there's actually like you know I think kindness gets such a passive mm. um like it just gets a passive rap like just yeah. you know it's actually there is a strength in saying you know what so strong I can't do that because if I engage with you in that way, then we're just going to end up in conflict and bitterness and resentment is going to build in me and in Mm -hmm. you and we can't live at peace with one another. So there's clarity like I can't be around that. And that's a kindness. So I think even just in the way that you introduce your story, you're already inviting us into imagining how we could be peacemakers in this realm. Um, and so we're asking in this podcast, we're asking like two questions to help us uh, mm. be peacemakers. And the first one is, that we want to learn from you is how and why we should be engaging in politics in this mm. midterms uh, yeah. season. And so yeah. like, what what does that look like? Why we should be doing that? And then also as we pursue peace on a relational level, like how do we engage with politics with family and friends who think differently than you? And I think you've set us up really perfectly for that second one, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. I'm just going to pass it off to John to sort of explain a little bit more of that first question and get us rolling.
1: Yeah. Well, Carlos, I mean, uh, if there's anything I've learned, th- there was actually a commissioning that happened to me six or seven years ago, and you yeah, probably remember this. I do remember. We were together with a, a bunch of folks who cared about Jesus and justice, and we got to spend a few days learning each other's hearts and... um I live on a border here in San Diego, Tijuana, and in our final evening, we washed each other's feet. Yeah. And one of the most meaningful moments was when you washed mine and you commissioned me mm-hmm. to, to be in solidarity with your people uh, as sure. a Latino yourself. And because um, it's it's like for our family, we we very much see ourselves as borderlanders here. Like we're living mm-hmm. on this border and all the years now of relationships with those on the underside of power sitting in Migrant shelters, hearing stories of those fleeing cartels, mm. um, people on the receiving end of our overconsumption in the U.S. that just gets dumped in into Mexico. Our Mexican friends often say, when the U.S. Uh, gets gets a cold, Mexico gets the flu. Um, mm.
0: uh.
1: And and it's helped me understand that the, the big big picture systems matter. Um, that it's not Sugar. enough for me to pray with Ingrid, which she's in the in the shelter in Tijuana weeping for relief and say, oh, I hope God gives you a way into the U.S. No, no, no. I need to pray for her, and I need to give my life to change the broken systems that are breaking her and her three kids. And so for you, as someone who's uh, giving your life to those, quote, unquote, on the underside of power, why is it important for Christians like us uh, who have blue passports to
2: engage systems change on a political level as a peacemaking tool? Because I have a blue passport, too, and I can't vote on the midterms. Mm -mm. Because I lived in an I live I currently live in an American colony that has no representation in Congress and a place that I can't vote in the midterms. I can't vote for the president. And so I have uncles and cousins who have gone to war, wearing the American flag, who have given their life. They come back to Puerto Rico and they can't participate in the quote unquote democratic process of an American citizen deciding who is leading them and what voice represents them. And no. so there's 3.1 yeah. million people in Puerto Rico, um, there's about 10 million Puerto Ricans in the state, but the 3.1 that are here on the island, we don't have a voice and we get to see the same news, and we actually get to be affected by the same news, sometimes even to a, a greater extent. So, for example, there's, there's if there's a Supreme Court decision, which happened a couple of months ago, where they're eliminating rights on Social Security, it it, it affects Puerto Rico doubly. Like we lose mm. double the rights, double the access of the funding and the money. And it became even more clear. It, it became clearer than ever to me because as a pastor living in the South, I fell into the trap of it's really not that important. Like Politics is mostly dividing us. It's not mm-hmm. uniting us. Yeah. And then the politics of the Trump administration meant that more people died after Hurricane Maria happened than during the actual hurricane. And I met people while we were delivering food, while we were uh, dealing with the water crisis, while I'm bringing teams from the outside and funds and whatever, I would meet people on one trip, come back two weeks later and they had died because they didn't have access to medication, because they couldn't get a blood transfusion. And that was, again, it wasn't even like American politics. It is like the actual definition of politics, right? Mm-hmm. Of how we administer each other in a community, in a serving yeah. society.
1: Yeah. An
2: administration that didn't respond quickly enough, strongly enough, with enough compassionate willingness, or kindness to the people in Puerto Rico meant that elderly people were not having access to their medication and they died. And yeah. we're talking from one week to two weeks later to another three weeks later. And so we're still struggling Um, And so just off the bat, I need people who are listening to vote as they were voting for themselves, but also for me, because they Mm -hmm. literally are, because Mm -hmm. I don't have the opportunity to vote. I don't have I'm a second class citizen as an American citizen, as a Latino. And as a Puerto Rican living in Puerto Rico, I am officially a second class citizen. I live in an American colony that is taxed, but not represented. I actually been paying more taxes since I moved back to Puerto Rico than I used to when I lived as a pastor in Raleigh, North Carolina. And so, yeah, I've, I I lived under that illusion in the past, yeah. right? It, it's literally an illusion that it doesn't affect us. And there's zero doubt in my mind also, because here's the other side of the coin. Sometimes one party, wins and sometimes the other party wins and half of the time it doesn't get any better in the colonies and I'm not I'm not living in the only colony I live right there's American Samoa there's Guam there's the U.S. Virgin Islands we're talking millions of people living in what is considered America not being treated at all as Americans and I know there's communities inside of the continental USA experiencing the same kind of disenfranchisement disenfranch- and, and all that, um, you know, kind of put into the side and being forgotten, being marginalized. So,
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, now I'm mispronouncing words because I get passionate and angry and desperate and, mm. you know.
0: That makes a lot this- of sense. I feel like as I'm listening to you, um, so my godmother is Puerto Rican, Afro Latina, and so um, I remember her actually being frustrated that she couldn't vote. And like bringing that up at elections and I, I'm from Southeast Texas. And so I I never understood like first when she was like speaking Spanish in front of me and all of my friends were Mexican. And and I was like, wait, this woman who looks just like me is speaking Spanish. What? But then also like (laughs) her whole lived experience was different. And so like I totally get that i'm listening to you and i know that you and your wife and your family mm. like moved to puerto rico after hurricane maria to help those impacted mm. and that was a choice that you made to actually do something about disenfranchisement mm. disenfranchisement so i'm sitting here in in saint paul minnesota and i'm moved and i'm like yes i want to vote but that feels so small like yeah. What can you say to somebody that's like listening, you tell all of these stories and realizing how how our politics are are impacting you, but kind of feel powerless with just our one vote?
2: Yeah, it's 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 hard to thank you for that question because it's so hard to answer because it is both so small and so big. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and I'm sorry to keep going back to, oh, those titles are so important, but they're not. But at the same time, it's the same with the vote. It's so important um, because like, we're literally choosing people who have verbalized and not just through words, but through actions, right? We're talking congressmen and and we're talking um, senators, et cetera, et cetera, even governors that, that would have, that have proven already a track record of how they would help those like myself, who are quote unquote, a type of second class citizen within the American establishment. Forget yeah. about how we treat other nations and how we deal with Mexico and our Central American brothers and sisters and how we deal with our, our, our families in the Middle East and how we deal with the rest of the world. Just, just thinking about right, how my vote affects Americans, even outside of the understanding of what they taught me in school in American was. Mm -hmm. which, again, was mostly white suburban people. Um, Mm -hmm. But even even if I expand that a little bit, it's legitimately affected me. So I am making that request for people to be conscious about how they vote, to vote as if they were the most marginalized person living in America. How would you vote if you yourself were the most marginalized person? If you didn't have a right to vote, if you uh, were re- if you you know didn't have a right access to um, any sort of federal funding, any sort of federal help. If you were living in a community that was not represented in Congress, if you were living in a community that was over pol- policed, mm-hmm. think of putting yourself in those shoes and vote as you were one of those people. Who would you choose? Who would you support? And yet at the same time, the vote would be like the beginning of involvement. How can I vote as the first step of, you know, I'm being conscious about this thing that I'm doing affects me, but it also affects all these other people that I'm trying to put myself in their shoes. Um, But also, how do then I get involved and how do then I use my platform? And, you know, I, I know that people sometimes are dismissive of, oh, you just posted something on Twitter. That's not important. And I guess, again, yeah, I guess it's not that important. But for some people, it's a huge next step. I'm actually stating something that I believe to be right. And I'm using this little powerful thing that I have in my hand and I'm, and I'm making the next step. So I see it as a progression and I wanna be gracious towards people growing in that progression because I'm still growing in that progression and I remember 10 years ago being part of the problem and not the solution. I, I was the one that was playing this role inside of American white evangelical Christianity and in a bizarre way because I was a latino man in raleigh north carolina mostly pastoring a white a white evangelical church I was in a way like I was I was the puppet that people could say I'm not that racist my pastor's were mm-hmm. right
1: mm-hmm.
2: and so and I fell into it because it was a good salary because they paid me good money and I got on the delta platinum medallion status cuz I traveled enough I and know. that gave me access to right the lounges and stuff And so I played the role and I took advantage of that role, but I got to the point where I realized this one little thing, that first little tweet where I kind of challenged where I was. It could be insignificant, but it was significant at that moment
1: Mm, where I'm making
2: a step to use my voice, my little platform to say, You see it this way, but I actually see it this way. And this is the reasons why I see it this way. Because of my lived experience. Because of the actual gospel of Jesus Christ that says the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news. To the poor, to set at liberty those who are captive, to you know. And so there's a yeah. there's a specific audience that the Spirit of now I'm preaching because I come from a more <laughs> Pentecostal charismatic background, and so we use this whole Holy Spirit to get into green rooms and to get into bigger stages. When it was actually for the benefit of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, it's clearly defined come by on. Jesus Christ Himself. Right. And so I've been part of the problem, and I feel like compelled to somehow use all the platforms that I have, whether it's this nonprofit, whether it's my little Twitter, or whether it's whatever, to say to people, your vote is really important, and yet at the same time, it's not enough. What's the next step for you? Maybe yeah. it's using your social media. Maybe it's getting involved locally with the homeless ministry or the specific congress person that you actually believe and volunteering some time to help get them elected. And actually once they're elected, make sure you're the person keeping them accountable to the things that they said that they would do. Yeah. And so there's, I believe in progression. And sometimes baby steps are really important, and we can't deny those baby steps, expecting people to be already like the great liberator, right, when yeah. when they just need to take some steps towards that. And voting is an amazing first step.
0: Man, if I, had, if I had had a white hanky, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: what
0: hey, are you going to say, John? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah,
1: it just makes me think of um, a friend named, uh, locally here, her name is Noemi, and She is one of the most dynamic young women I've ever met, and she's Mm -hmm. a dreamer or a DACA recipient Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. who came to the U.S. super young with her parents and now is here. And uh, in this situation where she can't, there's no path to citizenship for her. And um, so many times I and we have sat with her and she's been gracious enough to meet with a lot of uh, well-intentioned, dominant culture folks to help us get close to this reality. Yeah. And she says, uh, I can't vote. So I need you to on my behalf. And sure. that is a powerful word when it's coming directly from someone who's impacted by these broken systems. And if you can mm. see, if she's liberated to fully participate in society, mm. our society will be way better because she's incredible. And mm. so it, it, it makes us think of like, OK, we have an opportunity. And we often use this language of uh, around privilege. Privilege is the ability to walk away. Well, we mm. need to discern when do we leverage our privilege and when do we lay sure. it down? And that's a sure. moment yes. when she's asking us to vote on her behalf. We leverage it. Yeah, because she doesn't have that opportunity. And it leads to the flourishing of someone who's impacted by these broken systems.
0: That's good. That's so good, John. So Carlos, so last last October, I decided that I wanted to knock out a whole bunch of our Christmas shopping because I did not want to be rushing my husband and our pastor. So that Advent season, I'm sure you're a pastor, so, you know, that whole Christmas season Advent so much. So I was like, "Let me knock it out." And so I was like, looking to see what was available. I think maybe, maybe more. It was like mid-November, but I was looking to see what was available. I saw all of these like Christmas onesies, and I thought, "That's cute," but I don't need to spend. A ton of money on something my family is like literally going to wear for maybe half a day, just for a picture, right? So I so I did something I didn't tell my family what I was doing. I purchased the flip the table of oppression sweatshirts Aww. for each family member and then Aww. like matching like black pajama bottoms because Aww. what we always do is we always go to the movies in our Christmas PJs. No, you don't. Either, Yeah, we like no, even like either on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day we always do that.
1: So okay, Amazing. so now we, we know do. who that family
0: was. So, okay. Amazing. <laughs> and we've been doing that since they were little, so it's like a family tradition. So I thought, I love okay, well, we can get. The, I mean, we look, we look like how everybody looked during the pandemic. You know, sure. like loungewear casual, whatever. We can get away with it. So we so I give it out to the family everybody loves it they're so Aww. like I even got the you, there used to be an ornament we have an ornament for our Christmas tree um, everybody was excited and our our daughter says to me well what do we like why did we do this why did we choose this why did you choose this and I was like because Christmas is a time when we celebrate Jesus yeah. and this is who Jesus is That's Jesus right. flipped the table of oppression so we put we wear it we go to the movies we take a family picture of it and then my husband and I start catching a little bit of flack from some mm. people who are like, why would you make this holiday political? Why mm-hmm. like that, you know, it, this is supposed to be a joyful, ho- like amazing mm-hmm. holiday. You have this picture of Jesus with a, in a th- crown of thorns. Like we got some pushback. And thankfully my husband's an aide on the Enneagram. So he's like, bring it. He he was really <laughs> ready. But I kept coming back to that. Like this is the Jesus who I love. And this is the Jesus I want to worship and and pay attention to you on Christmas and so I had a thing to say that was really centered and rooted in in my beliefs that for people who gave pushback but I'm curious as we begin to pursue peace on like Mm. that relational level Mm. and we're engaging in politics and we have like clear like I have clarity about how I want to think about Jesus and Mm. how I've experienced Jesus how do how have you found that's it been helpful to engage with friends and family who think Mm. differently than you
2: it's been really helpful to be in Puerto Rico. It's an advantage that most, I would say the last five years since we've been back, that all that engagement, most of it happens here.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's easier for me, and I and I and and I understand how it might be harder for people that are still back in North Carolina um, in more of the white evangelical conservative spaces. It's much easier for me because they're coming to my place and I'm feeding them rice and beans. And I got this huge avocado that I've just given to them. And I'm getting and I'm cooking up some mojitos using fresh mint here from the campus. And so we're having these conversations at this table. And, I, and I'm and i saying it's easier for me, but I'm also wanting to encourage those that are feeling like, oh, it's hard to have those conversations. It's probably because you first have to step away from the systems of power that give the ruling the leading of those conversations to somebody else. And you need to start creating your own tables, not to be like, ah, my table is better than yours, but to actually like, you know, this is a table that we created where it's inclusive, where everybody's welcome. I love that Jesus actually says to love your enemy because he's Mm -hmm. not saying, don't don't act like they're not your enemy. Don't even call them enemies, you know? No, no, he's saying, you have to define that they are actually in a way, in a system that is against you, mm. and you can define them as enemies and then the invitation is to love them, to welcome them, to receive them, to have those hard conversations, but not in the place where they're in control, not in the place where they're in charge of the conversation, not in the place where they're the ones saying, we're not enemies, we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we could have this conversation without these bad attitudes that you're having and, you know, et cetera. Et cetera. And so I believe... In the, in, in the intentional empowerment of those who have been marginalized, forgotten, pushed to the side. And I believe those of us who have, whether by race, sexual orientation, place that we were born, whatever it is, where we have been part of a group that has been marginalized, forgotten, pushed to the side, that we have to be intentional about, well, I'm gonna create my space and I'm gonna create my tables. And it might not look the same, it might not even be as comfortable, but it's gonna be our table. and. And so, you know, when, when people say, and it happened in my white evangelical church, or, oh no, we're creating a table, you know, where black people can come and they can, we want to hear from them here. Yeah. You're still inviting them to your table. Why are we not going to their table? Why are we moving to their side of town? Do You realize there's still their side of town in this town and it's 2016 and we're still having those clearly defined spaces. And so I've, I've I really believe in the intentional empowerment. I really believe it's part of the gospel. I really believe that Jesus went to the temple. He saw that there was a system of oppression that was created to use economics to have access to God. And his appropriate godly, what he saw God do in response was to flip those tables. Not to have a conversation, not to have a sit down with those people, but to actually flip it. In a way that, okay, now we can build some actual tables that are going to be led by those people who were previously oppressed, previously put down, previously forgotten. And so my invitation um, is for the creation of new tables. It's for, as we start at the beginning, clarity and definition. Not clarity and definition to separate, but clarity and definition so we can come back to the table with like actual This is what I believe. This is what you believe. This is how we're extremely different. This is why I'm extremely different. And we can, I think, I I think those honest conversations are way way healthier, way more productive than the pretend ones. And so, yeah, flip the tables of oppression so that we can create new tables and maybe starting, you know, I'll finish with this. It's incredible how Jesus is not just throughout his three years of active ministry, you know, seems to be keep going, Further down, and I've heard some people that are legitimately almost offended when Jesus uses that language in Matthew 25, the least of these. I get it, but he's intentionally saying what's in our hearts. That's how we see them, as the least of us. And he's saying, Mm -hmm. when you you keep finding the least of these, you keep realizing there's somebody even least, quote unquote, than that. Mm -hmm. Then you get to the place where you find Jesus himself. And when you serve them, when you love them, when you empower them, you're doing that to him. Mm -hmm. And so... We are intentional as an organization here at the Happy Givers. What are the marginalized communities? Let's go there. Who are the marginalized people within those marginalized communities? Let's go there. Who are the marginalized people within that marginalized family that we found in that marginalized community? Let's go there. And to be intentional about creating tables in those spaces Mm -hmm. because the conversations will be very, very different and I think more productive. So
0: So, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask a clarifying question because mm-hmm. this is kind of what's been um, budding, burgeoning in me as I'm thinking about bringing people together. It's yeah. almost determining or defining, like, what this table is for and what this table is for not because I mm-hmm. or not for. Because I think mm-hmm. oftentimes we come to the dinner table and we think we're gonna have we're gonna have this vibrant debate of politics at the dinner table when maybe the dinner table is a place where we deepen our relationship. We hear more of our family stories, yes. learn more about our individual culture. So but maybe say like we're gonna take this conversation about politics to the coffee shop table and we're gonna be in public mm-hmm. so we don't act a fool. But like, like maybe that table is the appropriate table for that. And so preserving some spaces where we don't talk about politics because we want to stay in relationship with each other. Does that sound like healthy clarity and boundaries to you or no?
2: That is that is day one of teams coming here, because, again, we're still as an organization in that uncomfortable space that is necessary as an organization like ours, where we're still welcoming short term teams. And there's important conversations that we can have in another podcast about the benefits or the detriment of short-term teams. As an organization, we've decided, and this is an intentional choice, to still welcome teams. Once a month, we still welcome teams. Half of those teams are coming from white evangelical spaces. Hmm. Now, as a leader of a nonprofit in a marginalized community that more than 50% of people are living in extreme poverty, financially – in terms of hands and work, I need those teams. And I get the important conversations that we need to have about not welcoming short-term teams because they're not helpful, but Mm -hmm. I can bring people here and say, let me show you why I need these teams here and how we maximize the benefit of having those teams as opposed to the teams becoming a burden to us, how we can put them to work. And the first conversation we'd have on day one is precisely defining those tables. This is not a place to talk about X, Y, or Z. This is not a place to like evangelize and try to get everybody saved. This is not, and and because again, because they're coming to my home, to my community, to serve people who are actually my neighbors, not in concept, but down the street, right? The the It's a completely different platform to have both definition and then have invitation. And I think that's the key. When you have definition, then you can have much better invitation for uncomfortable conversations, for necessary challenges, for necessary pushback. And so welcoming people here to Puerto Rico to the work that we do, defining, like you just said, this is the things that we don't talk about here. These are the things we do. Something as easy as whether you wear a mask or not. I don't care if you spend the last two years denying the benefit of masking the vaccine, you're in our community, you're suffering elderly people, you're going to wear your mask, you're going to have your distance, you're going to take care of people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To this moment, even people that fully disagreed wore their mask and did their work. And we could have them conversations at at, at our dinner table that we created here about the benefit or not benefit or the whatever about mask or whatever. Um, But it was in a way because it was defined and then there was an invitation. And so... I guess, I think that, again, that's a benefit of welcoming people to my home as opposed to me going to this.
1: I think that's really helpful in clarifying, though, because I think some folks, uh, especially those many that are listening to this probably right now, are in positions, mm. um, w- what we call dominant culture people who yeah. have levels of privilege and are saying, oh, then I guess my task is I need to go into every one of my family reunions and flip over tables and <laughs> like yeah. pull things up. Which there is a role, to and we were talking about this in our last podcast, to, to courageously move towards and talk about hard things and injustice. Sure. But sure. it can also become an ego-driven thing where it's like, oh, I just got to blow mm-hmm. this stuff because I'm right, and I got to go tell all these people that are wrong how 100%. to be right. And then it becomes about us rather than about mm-hmm. those on the margins. And so Mm-mm. I think this this conversation around boundaries and clarity as to what this table is and what this table isn't is really so important for those of you listening in to, to, to hold on to. We're not saying, like, at least as I understand it, you need to go around as some self-righteous person who thinks you're <laughs> blast blowing everyone up on social media is helping marginalized people get mm-hmm. healing mm-hmm. there might be a role for that but if that's if that's all we're doing we're not no, actually no, no. reflective of the fr- fruits of the spirit and we're not uh, dismantling the injustice we're trying to dismantle uh, yeah. yes, so there is right. that that level of discernment and that's that's one of my questions uh, to you carlos and we're wrapping up here soon but uh, I, I think we can get so hot around these tables if they're undefined around politics yeah. boom we're debating partisan politics and polarization and we're just kind of jumping off each other's triggers rather than mm. having a conversation mm. what are the human stories that get lost in that when we just start yelling at each other and only reading the headlines and humans are being impacted by perpetually broken systems because we like to maintain the status quo because it's comfortable for us it keeps us in power so what are those stories we need to know because i found that those can often be the most transformative for sure. spaces around those tables
2: for sure. Well, just to, before I answer that question, the personal challenge for me has always been, whenever talking about flipping tables, is reminding myself, and again, as a Christ follower, as a Jesus follower, is Jesus flipped those tables, but he also died for the merchant selling at that mm. table. Yes. And so there's always that element of hope. And, I'll, and then I'll answer the question about this, the personal stories. I feel... That I learn about the table of Jesus, the gospel, the welcoming of everybody and my own family and the in the brokenness of my own home. Both of my parents in their second marriage, both coming from terrible divorces, uh, abuse, alcoholism, adultery, both coming from a mess. And so I'm the firstborn of both my mom and my dad's second marriage. So I have sisters Two sisters from my dad's first marriage, one sister from my mom's first marriage. And then there's the two of us, Carlos and Carla, yes. Um, And then there's my younger sister, Cristal, who is a a cousin who we adopted because her parents, my sister's brothers, were murdered because of drugs. Right, so it's okay if you don't understand that, if you got lost in that mumbo jumbo, because that's what it felt like. Our family was a mumbo jumbo of brokenness and pain and whatnot. My parents clearly defined that I could not call my brother, my other sister. I have five sisters. I couldn't call any of my sisters half sisters. Hmm. My sisters that between themselves are actually stepsisters couldn't call themselves stepsisters. It was clearly defined at the table, no matter how drunk my dad was the night before, how loud my mom screamed the night before that. If it's Sunday, we're sitting at the table. We're always welcome and we can talk and we can converse and we can have a good time and we're gonna have a meal and we're gonna have dessert and then we're gonna go on a drive together and we're gonna drive around looking at all the satos, which is like the mutt, the the, the dogs that are mutts all over Puerto Rico. And we had named for all the mutts and no matter how broken we were, my dad's ex-wife to this day, I call her mom and my mom and her are good friends we have photos of our Christmas Christmas shots, right? Where my dad's ex wife is on one side, my mom is there, my mom's ex husband is there, and so we were we weren't we were clearly defined as a family that no matter what happens, we're always welcome to the table,
0: mm-hmm. and no matter
2: what, we're Rodriguez, and we belong to the Rodriguez family, mm-hmm. and so that that was personified. The gospel was personified to me when they weren't even really you know talking. Um, About the gospel in the actual Mm -hmm. because we weren't really going to church at all Um, and so in My personal table. I discover the power of inclusion to then move Mm -hmm. on to those hard conversations Where my mom said I'm done with this abuse and she left my dad Mm -hmm. And then after a year and a half of living in the States where I learned this language that I'm using now in this podcast My parents got back together. We came back to Puerto Rico They restored their marriage still a great marriage to Uh this day so I know both the brokenness That seems like dismissive, like they're so broken, they're so evil, they're so bad, they're so toxic that we need to put them to the side. That was my family, which is now the complete opposite. Healthy Hmm. and loving and caring. My parents couldn't be more supportive, more loving, more encouraging. And I remember all the brokenness. And at the same, so I have hope for the worst of the worst. For the people that I would call out the most, I have tons of hope for them still. Mm. And... I have hope that the place of the table where we're still broken, John and I and all of us are still so broken and there's still so many things that need to be corrected. There's still so many blind spots in our theology in the way we relate. So I'm talking to us as men in the way we relate to women in the way we make spaces. There's still so many, so much patriarchal thinking and emotions that we still carry. And if we dare to still and I use Trump as an example, if I call Trump. I need to call out the Trump and me too. And the ways that in my leadership, right, I'm, I'm still trying to find ways to get everybody to do what I want, how I want it, when I want it. And so going back, my family proved that the table is always open. And in that table that was broken, there's also hope for it to be not such a broken table. Mm-hmm. and for the toxicity to be resolved and for issues and for therapy to be helpful yeah. and for families to come together with clarity with repentance to do better than they used to right yeah. and then in that space then we can create new tables where more people are included where yes. there is more openness where there is more hope so thank you for that you know clarity that you brought um, about defining whether it's not just going around flipping tables mm-hmm. is that we get to flip those tables from a place of healing from mm. a place of We want to flip them because we want to create new ones. Yes That are more inclusive That's it. that are more welcoming that That's are it. more full of hope that are more Because I believe with all my heart that Jesus was intentional. He was intentional in his audience The best thing Jesus could do for the rich people was focus on the poor mm. that was actually also part of him loving the ruling class was, it can't be all about you. So, and I'll finish with this. We have that list of the love thy neighbor list, love thy immigrant neighbor, thy homosexual neighbor, thy Muslim neighbor. And people are like, why doesn't it say love thy white neighbor? I'm intentional about that. I don't put the (laughs) white neighbor there because I'm being really intentional. We need to clearly define the ones that haven't been loved, the ones that are being put to the side. And that's a gift to my white brothers and sisters that I'm not centering them again. Um, because they've been centered enough. And it's not because of hate. It's actually part of the invitation. Yeah. Um, decentering whiteness is actually a gift to white people. It's actually part of the gospel to them. That is not all about them, about their history, and about their culture, right? Sure. And so it, it feels sometimes like an attack, but it's actually an invitation. Mm-hmm. And so, And I feel Jesus personified that best. As he's calling out the Pharisees intensely, you godless, empty tombs. I love you and I'll die for you. But stop being so
1: empty. That's it. I I love that. And I I think what's so important for us to hear is it's not just about flipping over the tables. It's about flipping over the tables so that we can build a better one. (laughs) It's like there is a better way. And those of us are living in this space being like, oh, whatever, whatever this evangelical thing is I inherited. That is not it. So, like, what's the thing? And so this is is really a, pr- a process of purging and confession and repentance such that we can be like, oh, that's the thing, and that actually looks like good news. And so I, I appreciate the way you're inviting us into that vision, and that's a vision we want yeah. to cast for folks, too. It's not just about pointing what was. We can flip that mm. stuff over and say, where are we headed? Um, mm. Because that's that's what good news looks like. Um, yeah. Carlos, where do we find you and support your work and give us, give us the spiel?
2: Well, the best thing is to come to Puerto Rico. We are an intentional welcoming organization. Like we love hosting people, hosting teams. We're here in the town of Baja. It's in the north coast of Puerto Rico, right by the Atlantic. Amazing beaches nearby, amazing community, lots of need and poverty, but also lots of generosity and loveliness and hope. Um, And so coming to Puerto Rico and you find all that information at the Happy Givers, anywhere online you type... At the Happy Givers TikTok, Great. Facebook, MySpace—no MySpace—all yep. um, the other ones <laughs> um, you can find us. Um, you go to thehappygivers.com. It's mostly our store, and why we are—why we push our store is because. We print our stuff here. We create our stuff here. We're employing people to print and to ship out of Puerto Rico. So it's not just funding the nonprofit, but it's also creating jobs within the nonprofit. Mm. So we have this beautiful ecosystem of farming and a social kitchen. Um, We do rebuilding work. We're still hosting volunteers. We're actually printing and shipping out of Puerto Rico. And so we're trying to create something that's beautiful, that's hopeful. Um, and it remains open, like mm-hmm. in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the pain. So whether you find us online and as you find us online, you give a donation. All donations are welcome. But we're also intentionally trying to create sustainable ways. When the donations dry up, we can still create and still do what we do. So any awesome. any help, whether shopping, whether visiting, um, you know, that million dollars you got. Yeah, we'll oh, take yeah. it. We'll put yeah. it to work.
0: <laughs> well but honestly,
2: people visiting would be helpful. And- cool. well,
0: I will yeah. Well but well, Carlos, you should just know that the Moore family will be purchasing five hoodies because wow. we do this thing. We so do this sweet. thing called Cozy Thanksgiving because we've always just been us. My husband and I come from dysfunctional backgrounds, so we've mm. never celebrated Thanksgiving with our family. It's always been the five of us. Aww. And I started this thing three years ago, or maybe four years ago, so pre pandemic called Cozy Thanksgiving where everybody got a new hoodie and so they would come to the Thanksgiving table in a hoodie instead of like the fake like dress up and pearls that's just not realistic because mom cooked all day and I just want to be comfortable while I'm eating my turkey that's right so I'm actually going to be sending my family like the unisex hoodie link and just asking them to each pick one and so 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 we'll do we'll do our part and we hope our listeners go and shop and do their part thank um, you and then plan a trip down but thank you this has been such an energizing and hopeful conversation Carlos thank you so much for joining us it's my peace and politics
2: love you guys thank you appreciate it see you again
1: hello everyday peacemaking podcast listeners there's two things with global immersion we wanted to let you know about first this podcast would not be happening if it wasn't for our embers community this is a collective of folks from all across the country and the world who give money every single month to help fund our everyday peacemaking resources Like our monthly periodical called The Monthly Peace, our daily contemplative contemplative prayers, webinars, and this podcast. So, uh, if you'd like to join this community of funders for five bucks a month or five hundred bucks a month, we would be thrilled. You can follow the link in the show notes or go to our website, globalimmerse.org, to jump in on that. Second, we're about to open up applications for our 2023 leadership cohorts. Uh, These cohorts are designed for faith leaders who want to go on a journey of discovery in the intimate company of peers and trusted guides. We want to do the slow, hard work that leads to healing and renewed vision for who you are and I am, and how we will collectively lead restoratively in the church of the future. These cohorts include in-person retreats, online learning, coaching, and immersive experiences. One, uh, the Journey of Hope cohort culminates in a trip to Northern Ireland to learn from uh, other peacemakers in that global context. And the other, a journey home culminates with a pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago, where we seek to confront the conflict within ourselves that inhibit our ability to lead towards equity and justice and peace. So, space is very limited. Jump on it, and you can get more information and apply in the show notes or go to globalimmerse.org leaders. Oh, wow, John. That was fun. That was
0: fun. <laughs> That was
1: and and hard and great and intense and glorious all the things back and forth all
0: the things which is so surprising around a conversation about politics that's true and, and brokenness and hardship yeah I was ta- like I, I was just saying to you like gosh my face hurts almost mm-hmm. from smiling so much <laughs> so yeah
1: if only so everyone could see how. How many times his arms moved up
0: and down? <laughs> exactly.
1: I mean, the dude is just super fun to. <laughs> I feel like I just went through a jazzercise class or something.
0: It's contagious. It is, you know. And I think that that is my prayer for our listeners: is that mm. there is a contagious joy and hopefulness yeah. that they experience and that they seek out, even as we are stepping into this call to peace right. making for politics. Yeah. So, what stood out to you?
1: Uh, a few things. The f- one one of the loudest pieces was the way he talked about politics in and of itself. That, like, he was adamant about saying politics matters. In other words, leverage your votes for the sake of those on the margins. Um, get involved in the conversations. Be willing to have big picture deba- debates. And don't let that insulate or isolate you from actually being proximate to those yes. who are experiencing the pain of those broken policies. He was very much in a both-and space and and called us out to say, when you get stuck just kind of talking theory at a political, politics, partisan level, uh, we should probably check ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. And also, like, moving into relationships and in solidarity with those that are hurting
0: mm-hmm.
1: is going to kind of make some of the political debates seem trivial because this person is hungry and this person yeah. lost a family member and this person doesn't know when their house is gonna get rebuilt. So right. it, it felt like he was t- he was telling us to take seriously our our call to leverage our votes for the sake of the margins and also hold our hands open uh, and be willing to use them in real life, which was really refreshing.
0: Yeah. What stood out to me was his mode of communication. I mean, we've already talked about the joyfulness, the passion, but yeah. he, he did something that I think is so important for us to think about when we are talking about politics, even to people that we agree with, um, not just those that we dis- disagree with, but rooting why we are voting a certain way um, in our stories and in lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, not as a way to sort of, and I hate to use this, but I still haven't figured out a good substitute, but not as a trump card, but mm-hmm. as, and, and not as a way to, to like throw around moral superiority or anything like that, but just th- you what I love about doing this with you is that you really want this to be rooted in human stories because mm-hmm. actual human people are affected by how we order society. Yeah. So I loved how he, he told actual stories. Yeah. Um, and that, that gave a lot of clarity to me because I, it doesn't matter what I know. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can't communicate it in a winsome way that's actually rooted in humanity, mm-hmm. then I don't think I can inspire the humanity in the other.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's good.
0: What are you I, still pro?
1: Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say that another piece that really was loud, I think, probably especially for our audience, is the idea of of flip tables, build better ones or bigger ones or mm-hmm. more clear ones. Yeah. Uh, that were, were, there's just a temptation to be really self righteous. And I I've had so many colleagues and friends of color be like, hey, white progressive folk, talk a big game, but if you just like yell at folks, and leverage shame, it doesn't actually change our lived reality. So, can you do yeah. that a little better?
2: <laughs> and, yeah. and I yeah. was
1: hearing that, like, yes, we need to flip the tables and invite people into a better community. Don't just say leave that community and not have an invitation there. And so, right. to me, that's a much harder, uh, more holy call and invitation. Uh, and it guards us against being like egocentric folks who just think we're right all the time. And, and yeah. it keeps us on a confessional journey, keeps us proximate to the pain. Allows us to live in solidarity rather than just like charity and giving handouts and thinking that's our role. So, yeah, I appreciated his language around that.
0: So I appreciated his language around enemy. Mm. Um, I'm still processing it, to be honest, because I and I still think this serves me well. I think of my enemy as a person who's just beyond my empathy, which means if I've reached a place where I can no longer access empathy for someone, then um, then I need to be aware that I that means I can't love them. So I'm not mm. loving my enemy. So that's kind of how I've done the little reframe in my head. Because yeah. the word enemy feels so triggering and full of baggage. But then he was like, um, actually, hold up, there's something good about identifying that somebody is an enemy. But what he did was he took again, the gas out of that word for me of like, ah, that doesn't mean that you're a horrible person. It doesn't mean you're bad. He even said the thing that I loved about how Jesus flipped the tables of oppression, but then Jesus still died for the merchant behind that table. Mm-hmm. So the like tension I am learning to sit in coming, coming from this conversation is how do I sit in that space of empathy for somebody who I deeply disagree with, mm-hmm. whose theology, ideology, voting practices have made them an enemy to me and my lived experience? But yet, still hold on to empathy and love for them. I'm still figuring that out. But I love that call for that clarity and that boldness of saying, "Yeah, you're you're actually an enemy to me." But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that doesn't have to mean what we think it means.
1: That's right. That's right. That's good. Yeah. What uh, What practice do you have for us? Spiritual practice that moves us. From yeah. Our heads to our hands and hearts.
0: So our practice today is the practice of curiosity. Um, and Carlos, like I said, utilized the method of storytelling. And so what I would encourage our listeners to do is to look at who's on the ballot and look at the policies or the things that are on the ballot to be voted for, learn about them, but learn about them, not for the sake of gaining more knowledge, not for the sake of, um kind of understanding civil, like the, the civil process more, but actually like learn from it from the perspective of stories. Hmm. So who are the actual people that these, that these politicians are engaging with? Whose stories are they telling? Whose stories are affected by these policies or these fit bills? Like do that work, but for this week, collect as many stories that are connected to this upcoming election season as you can. That's good. Thank
1: you. Okay, friends, uh, we're going to close it up here, but we want to invite you, uh, as we do each week, to go to the show notes or go to the website, grab the practice guide, which is a PDF you can uh, download or print out that guides you into a series of contemplative and relational and systemic peacemaking practices practices related to this midterm season. Uh, and we want to send you off with this. May we be a people who flip tables of oppression and give our lives to building better ones.
0: Amen.